0: Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who cares for us, you love us, you are concerned about us in all the different aspects of our lives. Uh, Father, we're so thankful that, uh, Lord, you know the future, and not just that you know it, but that you have uh, great control over the future. You know exactly how all of our lives are going to out and you know exactly how you're going to bring every single Christian into your kingdom. And Father, that is such a great comfort for us. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to see how that motivates us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling even today. And I pray, Father, for those of in this room who are not believers, who are not Christians. Father, that you would use even this message this morning to confront their hearts and help them to see that they do not stand with us in the end. And Father, use that to uh, bring them into your family this morning. So bless this time around the word. May it be encouraging, may it be practical, may it be helpful and useful for these students. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we've been going through the book of James. So you can open up to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning, and uh, I think uh, we, ha- we have handouts. I think everyone's got one. If you don't have one, there's somewhere floating around here, so this should be enough. Uh, but we have been going through the book of James, and we are really coming to the conclusion of the book this morning. Uh, we're, well, we're making our way to the conclusion. Uh, And all along the way, we have looked at a variety of tests of saving faith. There's been a lot of tests of of saving faith. Uh, In other words, uh, the question of the day that, that we can be asking ourselves is, how do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I'm a Christian? Are there keys to help me unlock that answer for me? And the book of James becomes a helpful resource to help us understand that. Am I a Christian or not? Well, Do you follow the principles of the book of James? Does your life match up with that? And more importantly, does your heart reflect that as well? Okay? And so we've seen many tests. Uh, When Nate was preaching several weeks back, uh, we saw uh, the perseverance of suffering at the beginning of chapter 1. We saw uh, the test of blame and temptation. We saw the test of response to the word of God. Uh, We saw the test of impartial love, the test of righteous works. We saw the test of the tongue. Uh, We saw the test of humble wisdom and the test of worldly indulgence. So that's just a snapshot of the different tests that we've seen. And since I've been here, uh, we've seen the test of dependence. We've seen uh, the test of patient endurance, or at least the first part of it. And that's what we're continuing today is the test of patient endurance. This is part two. And so our study has given us many different tests. Many different tests. And each test not only helps you measure measure your outward, external actions against God's holy and perfect standard, but I think more importantly, our study shows you how, not just do you know that you are a Christian, but is your life marked by a radical, a radical change in your heart? Is there a radical transformation that's taken place inside your soul? James really tackles that subject all throughout the book. And by this point, you should not just be asking yourself, do I live out all these commands in the book of James? That's true. I I hope that that is the case that we're seeking to live godly lives just like James is commanding us. You know, do not be impartial. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Um, you know, not many of you should become teachers because you know, your, um, your, your, your tongue is, is wicked. But the real question of the day here is this. Do I have a desire to live for God? Do my outward actions reflect a heart that is completely changed? That's really the question of the day. That's really the big deal. And so what James has been doing is he's really been fishing in the depths of your soul through this book. He's not casting his line on the surface of the waters, but just like a fisherman does when he casts his line, it sinks down deep into the ocean. It sinks down deep into the lake. That's exactly what James is doing. He's not just covering the surface level areas of Christianity. He's going deep into your soul. He's trying to expose what is really deep down inside your heart. And so we get a good picture of that. Uh, like we saw in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, in the test of dependence, right? We saw this. James scolded people who say, we will make so much money on all our business trips this year. We will, you know, go to this city and make a profit, and and so on and so forth. And the question you should, should be asking yourself is, why is that such a bad thing to say? Why does James scold people for saying We're just going to go do this and we're going to go do that. That doesn't make any sense. Why would he be so rude toward them? And on the surface, it's not a problem. It's really not a problem. But again, what's the point here? The point is that James is trying to expose sin that is buried in their hearts. What's inside of them? What's causing them to make such confident predictions about their lives? There's something inside that they have to deal with. And what we saw is that there is pride. There's arrogance. There's selfish ambition that is driving that kind of an attitude. And so James cuts through their words like you would cut through a a nice, juicy red apple. It looks all nice on the outside, and then once you open it up, it's all rotten on the inside. It's like, where did that come from? Well, that's exactly what James is doing. It looks good on the surface, but on the inside, it's rotten. And that proud attitude continued in James chapter five verses one through six, which is what we saw last week. We saw rich people. We saw people who were popular, who were beautiful, who were extravagant, and they were just lording all of their power over the poor. And the kind of people uh, these, these are the kind of people who are like filthy rich, right? But at the end of the day, God saw them as what they were, that they were filthy. they were filthy. And therefore, all their wealth will rot, and it will become the source of their own destruction. However, they will not be punished just because they're rich. That wasn't the lesson of the day. The lesson of last week was not, oh, these people are so bad because they have so much money. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not money is the root of all sorts of evil, right? It's what? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's the point. The reason these rich men and women get such a bad rap is because they were uh, abusing other people to get rich. They loved money so much that they were willing to terrorize other people. They were willing to steal from their own workers, from their own employees, just to get rich. That's how bad it was. And that that was the point of what we saw last week, Now, but what we also saw was not just that. We saw something else. We saw something else. We saw that the rich also have a heart problem. Just like like those who like to make confident predictions about the future in chapter 4, the rich also have a heart problem. And their biggest problem is not that they have fat in their wallets, but that they have fat in their hearts. We saw that in James 5.5. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. And if you remember, I said, that's such a weird picture. You would think James would say, you've fattened your bodies or or something like that. Uh, or you've, you've fattened, or you, you know, or like the analogy here, you've fattened your wallet. But no, you've fattened your hearts. And the point of that was, you've stuffed your heart full of sin. And that's where you have to go after. You have to go after your heart. You can't just go after the superficial, Um, actions of your life you can't just say well i'm I'm gonna stop you know being greedy well there's something that's driving that greed what is it what is the sin inside that is driving that you've got to go after that and that's what james is pointing at that there's something inside that we have to go after and so james kind of fires a warning shot in the air against these people in chapter five verses one through six But at the end of the day, he uses that, he uses that, like we talked about last week, to encourage the poor who are victimized by the rich. And so the whole point was, there is injustice in this world. There is injustice. And we often face injustice. But we can take comfort that God has a plan to deal justly with the unjust. And so if you are on the short end of the stick, It is nice to know that your opponent is going to get his just desserts. And that's kind of what we saw last week. But we transition now into a new section uh, that is continuing, in a sense, the section from before, but it begins to focus more on what is our response. Because there's a burning question in everyone's mind. And there's a question that should be resting in our brains right now. We should be thinking something. And that question is this. What do we do now? What do we do now? In other words, yeah, I know that, that God is going to take care of all these wicked people in the end. I know he's just. I know he's got it all figured out. But what about now? What about today? How do I respond today? If I face injustice today, if someone treats me poorly today, what am I supposed to do today? What, what is my response? And that's what verses 7 through 11 are all about. It's all about patience. Patience. Patience is the number one response. Now, we won't have time this morning to cover all five verses this morning. I was going to try to tackle all five verses, which I've kind of been consistently doing uh, throughout James. But as I got into this, there is so much here. There's so much here that I can only tackle two verses this morning, okay? So I apologize. We're only going to tackle the first two verses. And what we're going to see this morning from verses 7 and 8 is what patience looks like, okay? What patience looks like. Uh, If you want to walk away with anything this morning, the main point, it is this. We're talking about a biblical definition of patience. A biblical definition of patience. Uh, If you want to know what patience is all about, these are two verses that really define for you, here is patience, here is patience. And that becomes so helpful in a culture that is plagued with people who are impatient. We're so impatient in our culture, aren't we? We're so impatient. I'm impatient. I get impatient all the time. It's just, it's just like a natural gut reaction in our very fast-paced type culture. But even back then, people struggled with being patient. And so this is such a helpful definition for us to know what does patient, patience look like, especially in the face of injustice, especially when things don't go your way. So I want to point out for you two qualities, two qualities of patience from these two verses this morning that help us define biblical patience. Okay. Number one is this. Patience is, and I'll go and write this down so you guys can, you guys have this. Number one, patience is Persistent. Persistent. Patience is persistent. Persistent just means you know, you endure and you push through to the end. That's persistence. Patience is persistent. Okay. So let's read verses 7 through 8 to get a picture of patience. You can use your Bible if you'd like. Uh, I have the two verses on your sheet as well. So I'm just going to read right from the sheet here. It says, therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Look, the farmer waits for the choice fruit of the earth by waiting patiently over it until he receives the early and late rains. You too be patient. Establish your hearts because the coming of the Lord is near. Now, he starts out like he always does with every section that we've looked at so far with a command. There's always a command. Do something, do something, do something. And this time it's, excuse me, this time it's be patient, be patient. And he says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And then he uses an illustration to explain what he means by that. In other words, you know, the people might be asking themselves, well, James, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by be patient? Give me an example of what that looks like. And he's like, okay, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. And he uses the example of a farmer farmer, okay? And he says, the farmer waits for the choice fruit of the earth by waiting patiently over it until he receives the early and late rains. Now, this illustration is simple enough to understand, okay? You don't have to be a scientist to understand this. You don't even have to be a farmer to understand this, okay? It's very simple. It's very simple. Farming takes a long time. It takes a long time, right? Uh, There's some farming that happens around Bakersfield here. So you're probably even familiar with a little bit of this. Farming takes a long time. Farming forces you to be patient. You know, you take a seed, you shove it into the ground, right? And you pack the dirt over it, give it a little bit of water, give it a little bit of sun, and voila, tomorrow you have a tree, right, that, you know, grows into a grocery store for you, right? Not exactly, right? It takes a long time. It doesn't, doesn't grow overnight. It takes a lot a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of patience, okay? That's what the illustration is getting at here. It just takes a long time. It takes a long time. But let me just take you on a jet tour of farming for a little bit. Back in Israel 2,000 years ago. What was farming like back then? Because I think it's going to help us even understand this illustration just a little bit better, okay? So... Here's a news flash for you, okay? Back in those days, they didn't have machines, okay? They didn't have sprinkler systems. They didn't have uh, tractors or anything like that, right? All they had were like, maybe like a hoe and a, I don't know, a shovel. But even then, it wasn't quite like we have today. Like, it was, it was a lot different. Uh, and they just basically had their brute strength. They just dug into the ground, and, and they had to do a lot of manual labor, uh, they, they didn't have the ability to mass-produce their crops. We're so blessed in our culture to have the ability to have just, you know, there's actually not that much production that happens of um, uh, of farming and, and, and crops and stuff like that because we can just mass-produce it uh, in ways that are so efficient. Uh, and so farming was a lot of work. It was a lot of work, and it took a lot of time. It took years and years of prepping the soil and getting it ready. And it took years and years to get the trees to grow and the crops to grow. It was a lot of work. But what's more, what's more, and this is what our passage kind of highlights for us, is that farmers in Israel rely on what are called the early and the late rains, okay? The early and the late rains. Um, The early rains, those happened— around November, okay, around November, and this, don't worry, I'm going somewhere with this, all right, if you're like, why is he telling me this, this is weird, okay, the early rains happened around November, and the late rains happened around February, okay, and you're like, you might be wondering yourself, like, why, why are the early rains in November, and the late rains in February, that doesn't make any sense, shouldn't it be the other way around, right, but you have to understand, uh farming uh farmers their calendar starts in like September October because that's when you harvest and then you start over in September October to start planning again and so that's that's why that is uh if you want an analogy just you know the school schedule right when do you start school do you start in January no when do you start school August, August yeah right oh, right oh, now no, it's no. miserable right so you understand this okay the start of school is in August. Well, it's the same thing here. The, the start of their, uh, of their seasons was around October and November, okay? And then they would go through all the way through summer, and, and then early fall is when they start harvesting, and, and then they start over again. So that's kind of how it goes, all right? Um, so there were early rains that happened in November, just after they started planting all those seeds and stuff like that. And it would get the crops to grow a little bit, and then the rain would die down for a few months. And then around February, they'd get another surge of rain that would uh, help out their crops. So um, that's kind of basically how it worked in those days. Now, I don't know if you are aware or not, but Israel is a very dry climate. It's very dry, kind of like, a lot like Bakersfield, actually. It's very dry. Um, I don't think it's ever rained in Bakersfield ever. Do you? I haven't seen it yet. I mean, I've only been up here, what, two or three weeks here, but I don't think it's ever rained up here, ever. Um, now, for us, that's not really a big deal. It's, it's, kinda, it's really not a big deal. We're like, yeah, if it doesn't rain for, like, 20,000 years, you know, we're okay. We'll just, start, we'll just stop watering our lawns on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know. We'll just go to the local, you know, Hagen and pick up an extra case of water, and we'll be fine. You know, it's not a big deal. We'll just, you know, shower for 30 seconds less than we normally do, okay? But you have to understand, our American culture is, again, set up so efficiently. It is set up so efficiently. uh, We're able to transport water in ways that— societies have never been able to do so before. We have water channels that are coming from the mountains down into these dry areas just so we can have waters in our pipes and in our sinks and stuff like that. Uh, It's amazing. Uh, We have trucks. We have trains. We have planes to transport all kinds of water everywhere. And so the farming that we do in America, it doesn't suffer that much if we don't have that much water. Uh, We're able to get by. We're able to make do. But... You have to understand, if a farmer didn't get rain in Israel back in those days, and even kind of the way it is today, uh, he couldn't grow his crops, and he, that means people couldn't eat. That's kind of just the way it worked, um, you know. And if you're wondering to yourself, well, well, maybe I'm a meat lover and I don't—I don't like to, uh, you know, or I, I can just avoid eating wheat, or I can avoid eating corn for the rest of my life, you know. Well, you have to understand that if there's no water, there's no grass. If there's no grass, the, the cows can't eat. And if there's, the cows can't eat, there's no cows, and so there's no meat. So, you see how rain becomes extremely important. Uh, if you don't have rain, nothing grows. If nothing grows, everyone dies. That's just kind of the way it is. Um, you know, perhaps you know you're a traveler though. You're like, well, maybe I'll just leave the land and just go to somewhere where there's actually rain. But you have to understand something here. And I'm just going to erase this for a second. You have to understand where is, what Israel is like, okay? Um, this is Israel. If you're like, well, I'm just going to travel out of the area so I can get a, you know, find a better place to live. Down, down south is just desert. So if you try to travel, you'll just die. Um, if, you, if you go like, well, I'll just go east, desert, so you'll die. Um, if you're like, well, I'm going to go west, um, there's sea there's just like a there's like a a massive ocean lake and so you'll just die um and if you're like i'm gonna travel north um it's like oh yeah totally absolutely because there's a circle right no it uh there's enemies and so you'll die like it's just that's just the way it is like there's nowhere to go you're stuck uh so if you don't have water you just die that's just the way it is. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good day. Um, without rain, no one lives. It would just be easy. It's just so easy to lose your patience. So easy to lose your patience in that culture because it, it, everything is dependent upon rain. Uh, you, you can just read, read through the Old Testament. Something. Read through Deuteronomy. And look how rain is just so important to the way Israel's going to live. They're on the doorstep of entering this land of Israel, and they're like, yeah, we're so excited to go in. And God's like, if you go in this land and you disobey me, I'm going to take the rain away from you. And it's like, oh, that's not a big deal. No, that's a big deal. They're like, we're going to die. Like, that's the way it is. So you begin to see the kind of patience that this farmer has to have. It's a very persistent patience. You have to be very persistent. Uh, he doesn't get cold feet after the early rains in November and says, you know what, That's, it's good enough. I don't know if I'm going to get rain in February anymore. So I'm just going to harvest my crops in January. You can't do that. You have to wait for all the rain to come to get a good crop and to actually be able to feed your entire country. That's the way it works. And so patience requires persistence, requires persistence. Uh, you can find persistent patience even today in our fast-paced, uh, fast-paced culture. Uh, y- people actually are persistently patient. Um, how many of you have ever been hunting before? Anyone been hunting? One person? Two people? Okay, good. Well, even if you're not a hunter, you can still get this analogy, okay? If you ever go hunting without patience, you are in for a miserable experience, okay? I don't know if you know this, but hunting is 99% waiting, and it's 1% action. Uh, you know, everyone thinks of hunting. It's like, oh, yeah, I get to, like, shoot stuff and everything. And, you know, I don't know if you like hunting or not. But, you know, some people are like, that's really cool. And some people are like, that's really sad. But uh, really hunting, the majority of hunting is just sitting and waiting and silence and stillness. Because you have to be perfectly still to let the animals come near. It's just that's just the way it is. That's the way hunting is. And so you have to be not just patient, but you have to be persistent. You've got to be persistent. If you just wait for an hour and nothing happens, you're like, ah, I'm I'm done. I'm going to go home. And you don't get anything. You get nothing. And so we all have the capacity to be persistent. We all do. We can do it. Some people like to make the excuse, you know, well, I can't be patient because it's just who I am. No, no, no. We can all be patient. We're all patient about something. We're all willing to put up with something for a long period of time. If you've ever gotten your hair cut, you've been patient. You've been patient. I've never seen anyone pop out of the salon chair and say, that's it, I'm done, I don't have any more patience anymore, I'm just going to leave, like halfway through. <laughs> that would be ridiculous, right? Why? Because your hair's like going to be a mangled mess, right? It just doesn't work like that. Uh, you sit and you wait because you're persistent. You want something. There's a, there's a goal to achieve. You are looking forward to something. That's the reason why you are persistent. There's something you're looking forward to. And that leads us to our second point, our second point, okay? And that's this, that patience is confident. Patience is confident, okay? Patience is confident. The reason you can be persistent in patience is because you are confident about what you are going to get when you are persistent. There's something you're looking forward to. And that's the reason that we see in our passage in verses 7 through 8. Why is the farmer so persistent? Why is he so persistent? Because he knows that his persistence is going to get him a really good crop. That's why. He's looking forward to the choice fruit of the earth, as it says uh, in, in the text here. Uh, what, are some of you, what are some of you guys who have Bibles open? What, are, what is your translation when it says choice fruit? Yeah, what does yours say? ESV. ESV, what does it say? In, uh, when it says the farmer is waiting for or looking for, what does it say? Uh, verse 7, uh, Verse the end of verse 7. The farmer is looking for something or waiting for something. Mm-hmm. Oh, see how the farmer waits for the precious? The precious? The precious, so it sounds like Smeagol, the precious, uh, the precious fruit. Uh, this word precious, or this word for, um, I have it down as choice, or you can say valuable. Uh, this is, this is like the best, the best fruit, okay? The is waiting for the best fruit. He's not, he's not just settling for just kind of okay fruit. He wants the best fruit. There's something that he's after. He's after this. He's looking forward to something, and that drives his persistence. That channels his faithfulness. He's persistent because he wants something. You know, the the girl sitting in the salon chair, she's looking forward to what? Good-looking hair, right? And so she waits, right? She waits. And so patience is persistent because patience is confident in something, in something. It's confident. So what is James's point here? What does the Christian look forward to? What does the Christian look forward to? What is it that drives a Christian to be patient and to be persistently patient? What is that confidence that a Christian has? It is one thing, and one thing in particular, it is actually very, very uh, unique and is very, very specific here. He says it is what, at the end of verse 8, The coming of the Lord is near. The coming of the Lord is near. That drives a person to patience, that the coming of the Lord is near. That is the hope and the great desire of the Christian, the fact that the end is figured out. We don't have to wonder whether things are going to be okay or not. We know for sure that the the coming of the Lord is going to happen. We have that confidence. And that's why James concludes these verses with this statement. You too be patient, just like that farmer. You be patient and establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. Set it up. Build it up. Make it strong and sure. Why? Because God is coming back. Jesus is going to return. That's why. He says establish Your hearts, notice that your hearts, your hearts. We saw that, didn't we? We've seen that throughout the entire book. We saw it in chapter five, verse five, just just a little bit ago. People, the rich people, have fattened their hearts. They've stuffed their hearts full of sin. But what do we do? What do we do? We strengthen our hearts. We strengthen our hearts. In other words, we don't stuff. We don't stuff our hearts full of sin. We're stuffing our hearts full of confidence in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what is at the center of our heart. It's not not all the little things in the world that we're we're trying to seek after. It's who? It's Jesus. We wait for Jesus. We love Jesus. And we don't know when Jesus will return. We don't know when that coming is going to happen. God hasn't told us that. It's not in the Bible. You can flip from Genesis to Revelation, and you don't know when Jesus is going to return. But what do you know? Where is this confidence? It is that it is going to happen. It is going to happen. That's all you need to know. It's going to happen. And he says it is near. It is near. And what that means is is not so much that, you know, it's going to be in the next, like, I don't know, you know, two years or something. That's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? He's saying it's the next phase of God's agenda. It's the next phase of God's agenda. In other words, there have been so many different phases throughout all of Scripture that have happened. There's been the times, you know, in the Garden of Eden. There's been the times of Israel and wandering in the wilderness. There's been the times of Uh, king david and king solomon there's been the times of exile for israel there's been the time of jesus but what's the final stage it's now this is it this is the final era of history that is going to happen we don't know how long it's going to be but this is the last stage before everything ends before jesus comes back and makes everything right and so he says strengthen your hearts Strengthen your hearts because everything is about to turn around. Everything is going to change. For the Christian, it is such a great encouragement and it is such a great motivation to be patient, to be patient. What a comfort it is to know that if you are a Christian, God has set your future in stone. He has set your future in in stone. He has sealed how the end will turn out for you. And it is awesome. And it is just around the corner. Turn over to Romans chapter 8 with me for a moment. Turn, turn over to Romans chapter 8. And I don't know if you guys, uh, uh, if, you, if you like to use my sheets with the, with the verses on it and stuff, but, but it, uh, if, you, if you continue to come, please bring your Bibles as well. Uh, so I can flip over to different passages because I'm not going to put every passage in the Bible on this sheet, okay? So, uh, so bring your Bibles because we'll, we'll go to different places, all right? Now, notice what it says. This is a very common verse. You're, you're probably very familiar with this, okay? But look what it says in verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28, okay? But we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What does that mean? What is he talking about there? Does that mean my entire life is just going to be good? That everything that happens is just, it's all nice and happy and wonderful? No, that's not what that means. That's not what that means. What does he mean by that? Look at verse 29. He explains it. He says, because those whom he foreknew... Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He may be first among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, these He called. And these He called, these He also justified. And those whom He justified, these He also glorified. What is He talking about here? The hope of the Christian is not this life. The hope of the Christian Is that there is a chain reaction that God has caused to take place in the human heart for the Christian that will end in glory, that will end in heaven. That is the hope of the Christian. What was our theme at Regen Camp? Citizens, right? Citizens. What is our hope as a Christian? Not today, it's tomorrow, it's the future. It's knowing that we will be with Jesus Christ forever. We look forward to that. Doesn't that give you the kind of motivation and the power to say, I'm going to live this life with patience because no matter what happens today, I know that tomorrow is sure. I know that tomorrow is sure. That is the hope of the Christian. If you understand that God has a purpose for everything in your life, that he has planned for you to fail that math test. Really? Yeah. That happens. That he determined that your friends would get in that car wreck. That he has designed that your mom would develop cancer. That your cousin would pass away. When you understand that God plans all of that and orchestrates all that for good, then yeah, You can be patient, even if you are unjustly treated in this world. Even if things don't go your way all the time. You know that God is in complete control, and the end is wonderful. It's wonderful. People who are patient are people who invest in what matters. Uh, We're so concerned about petty things now in our world. Uh, We're so wrapped up in the here and now. Um, You know, it's always you know, that new video game or something. It's, it's that new outfit. Uh, what that boy said or what this girl thinks. It's that pop star or that kind of music or I want good grades or I want to please my teachers or my parents or my friends. Uh, I want that food. I want that in and out now. I got to have it, right? <laughs> I want to sleep an extra hour. I need coffee. Like there's always these little petty things that we're pursuing in our lives and we get so entangled by them. Uh, we can love and be absorbed by so many trivial matters. Uh, and, and here's the thing. We get frustrated. We get frustrated when our parents uh, take away that new video game or, or say we can't have that new outfit. Uh, we flip out when we realize that that boy doesn't like me or that, that girl thinks I'm weird. Uh, we get mad when we can't go to that concert or see that new pop star. Uh, we panic when we don't get good grades or we fail to please our teachers. Uh, We go crazy when we're starving and we want that in and out burger. We get aggravated when we have to get out of bed at such an ungodly hour, Uh, or when we don't have our coffee in the morning, or when we don't have our latte in the afternoon. We're just, we're impatient. We're impatient. But why? Why are we impatient? Because we love things that simply cannot deliver. We love things that simply cannot deliver. We were never designed to be satisfied with the things of this world, as if that's all there is. That's not the way we're made. But show me someone who loves God, and I will show you someone who is patient. 1 Corinthians 13, we saw it last week uh, in the main service. Pastor Steve talked about 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great love chapter of of the Bible. talks about what is love. What's the first characteristic of love? Love is patient. Love is patient. Show me someone who is wrapped up in God, who is consumed by God, and I will show you someone who does not get flustered by the trials of life, no matter how big or small they are. So what do you love? What do you care about? What motivates you? What captivates your thoughts and your desires? Those questions begin to tell you where your allegiance is. And so the test of patience endurance is more than a simple yes or no question. You know, are you patient? That's that's a good question, but that's not all there is. It's more than that. The test of patience endurance is just like every other test we have seen so far. It is a test designed to expose your heart. You know, I used to be I used to go fishing quite a bit uh, when I was younger. And if you've ever gone fishing, you can probably relate to my experience, okay? Uh, There were many times I would cast my line into the water. And it would, you know, go down and sink really deep into the water. And I would wait a few moments, and I would feel a big tug. And be like, oh boy, here we go. We've got something. So I would pull the rod back, and I would start reeling it in. And all of a sudden, sometimes... I would get a big fish, a nice, big, bright fish, and I'd be ecstatic. It's awesome. But you know, sometimes on the end of that line was not a fish. Sometimes on the end of that line was just some gross seaweed. Just maybe, or maybe like a, a big stick or something like that. And it deceived me. I thought it was a fish, but it got hooked onto something. And the reason why it felt so, so much like a big tug is because I was trying to pull it out of the ground of the, of the lake. You know, you can fake patience. You can fake patience. You can act the part. You can act patient on the surface and be fuming on the inside. You can play along and fool everybody. You can check the box that says, yeah, I'm patient and, and therefore think, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. But what would happen if I were to reel in your heart? What would happen? What would I see? Would I see a bright, beautiful fish or would I see seaweed? That's the real question here. What's inside here? What do you love? What do you care about? The test of patience, patient endurance is plunging to the depths of your heart. And next week, when we look at verse 9, we're going to see what's inside of it a little more clearly. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who exposes our hearts. Lord, Jeremiah 17 says that you test the heart. You test the heart. And even in the book of James, Father, we get a great picture of how you're testing our hearts. How you you dig down deep and you reveal and you expose what's inside. Father, I pray that you would help each one of these students to investigate in their own hearts. What do I really love? What do I really care about? Because that will help them to see, am I actually a Christian? Am I not? That's That's the true test here that is at the bottom of, of this entire discussion throughout James. And I pray, Father, that you, you would give us insight into these things. And I pray, Father, that as we, as we continue, as we conclude this, this series through the book of James, that you would use it as a, as a great resource in our own lives, and, and may we be able to uh, even use it in our, in our converse, conversations with other people as well. Father, thank you so much for it, and thank you so much for this time.